0: Hey there, and thank you for pressing play on this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. As a kid, I spent two years living with my grandparents off 47 and Manuka Road on a five-acre, century-old farmhouse surrounded by fields. There are a few big signposts in my life that I can point to as having an outsized imprint on my personality and lifelong interests. This experience is, no doubt in my mind, one of the largest imprints. I was in awe of the endless fields in every direction, all perfectly aligned in a row as you pass by them, looking like some sort of geometric line trick that perfectly keeps pace with the car. The sound of the corn blowing in the wind, giving away the breeze just a few seconds before it hits your face. Ordinary, obvious, boring things we frequently don't think of as we drive over these boring landscapes. Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, they're all full of flat fields that go on and on, feeling like an eternity. What we take for granted, while we flatly gaze at these repeated landscapes, other than what used to be there before all those crops, is how heavily people are managing that land. How much work it is to keep those rows straight, clean, and growing. How much thought, effort, trial, and error has gone into making that soil nutrient-dense enough to grow those same crops on it over and over. The way we're farming like this is new and is not meant to serve any other purpose than to grow, cut, prepare, plant, and repeat as much as a single crop as possible. I don't believe farmers intend to ignore other extraneous factors that are a result of such a system, but I do believe they have enough worries on their mind not to leave much room for considering them. How much of our land is like this? How much of the United States lives in this type of duality, were obvious problems hidden right in front of us in ordinary, banal. When the wildfires hit their peak this year, I saw one person's name come up to give another perspective to the duality of narratives being pushed. What about managing quote-unquote nature in a different way? A way steeped in tradition, but not just for the sapient tending it, but for the creatures, plants, fungi, death and rebirth, decay and ash, all in one. I valued tradition before I talked with my guest today. How can serve as a reminder of something to keep in mind, or a marker of time? But I never considered thinking about tradition in a way where I'm setting the conditions for traditions to emerge with other souls, or other creatures. I had the honor of talking with Ron Good, the tribal chairman of the North Fork Mono Tribe in California. We talked about the terrible state of California meadows, with only 5% of them being healthy, what a healthy forest looks like how him and his tribe tend to their land, how they got to witness traditions between generations of deer, super-producing acorn trees, what, what life was like before Columbus, and a whole lot in between. I hope you get as much out of this as I did. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for our mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Enjoy! Um. Yeah, thank you again. Uh, so, I wanted to just kind of... Uh we can get started, like, really whenever. So really, I just kind of want to get to more, know more about you and kind of the work that you're doing, and I really would like to kind of continue on some of the thought patterns that we had when uh, we were talking about, like, what the continent looked like pre-Columbia, right, before European contact and kind of your everything else that cascaded, all of the, everything that <laughs> happened afterwards, a real giant shift um, in the world that happened afterwards, so If you wouldn't mind just kind of introducing yourself really quick, and then we can go from there.
1: Sure. I'm uh, Ron Good. I'm the tribal chairman for the North Fork Mono Tribe. Uh, We're located in eastern Madera County and uh, been around here for thousands of years.
0: Yeah, I would love to get into that. Uh, So I got to know who you were from an article that uh, happened on I can't remember which publication, but you were talking about cultural burning and some of the, the the work that you did in order to make that happen, to be able to cultural burn. And what we were talking about last time that I would love to kind of just start with is kind of the cultural relationship that Native peoples before Columbus, um, what their relationship was with the land and how they interfaced with the land. Like your tribe in particular, and we were kind of talking broadly last time. But. Well,
1: that's quite a loaded question. Um, so basically, to understand that um, the Indian philosophy is that you know we're we're only one little small part of this land, and you know this land isn't here for our benefit. We are here to help benefit everything else. And so basically, what we're what that philosophy says is that we are all a community, and that community depends on each other. and that community is plants, trees, water, um, animals, insects, birds, flowers we're all part of that community and we all depend on each other so you know birds and bees and butterflies they depend on that flower and so you know we depend on the trees bigger animals depends on the trees it's just it, it's not only the, the the fruit that the tree provides rather it be a a pine nut, a pine cone, or an acorn, or or any other type of uh, fruit product that it would have, it's not only important for the food aspect, but it's important for the sustainability aspect, which means that whatever that seed is that that... that, uh, the vegetation has that it it needs to, it needs to be spread out. It needs to be buried by, you know, the, the, the gopher, the, the squirrel, the, you know, whomever's carrying it off. Uh, It needs to be carried off on the bear's paw, on the deer's hoof. All these things need to be transported around Uh, If your forest is the way we have it right now, it's way too thick. But this is by design. This is by design and policy, which we know, which was the uh, initial stages of fire suppression in 1900 to we need to grow more trees. So back when the native folks were on the land in pre-1850, the canopy for the forest was 40% or less. Had to be open. You had to be able to see through. You had to be able to, you lived out there. So you have a family out there. Most of the places you're you're near water. So you're probably near a spring. You're you're near a meadow. You're near a creek. All these different aspects so that your your water is nearby. But if your water is nearby, then so is your food. And so, again, so like I quick.
0: said before. So so before eighteen fifty, for like most of the forest, forty was forty percent canopy or less. And it had meadows and streams and all that. And you're saying that that was by design.
1: By design, yes. The you know we didn't create the meadows per se, but there are thousands of meadows out there even right now.
0: But you eight, created the conditions for the meadows to be taking place.
1: Right? Yeah, and and they were all functioning properly. Today we have, like I said, ten thousand meadows throughout the Sierra Nevadas and 70% needs maintenance or repair, 25% is non-existent, and only 5% of our meadows are healthy. And wow. it's, not about, it's not just about restoring the meadow. You have to restore the watershed around it. You have to open that up. Keep that open so that when the snow and rain hits the, the ground, it, it needs to hit the ground and stay there. Not either evaporate in the trees or run off the surface.
0: Right, capture it.
1: Yeah. So when when it's open, the root system holds that water, and it right. will slowly, slowly, you know, you let that water go down into the meadow. So would the- you say
0: like a, a pro one of the problems with the way that modern I mean, I would even say water, like uh, water maintenance or storage is mostly in reservoirs where, I mean, before, like what you're describing is actually holding water in what like wetlands that are created or root systems that are nurtured or meadows. And then having that water will eventually get back into the watershed into a stream or something like that. Well,
1: you know, uh, we didn't design this. Man didn't design it. I don't know how you believe. I don't really care. We we believe in Creator. We believe that, you know, Creator made this land. And he didn't put no dams on the creeks, on the rivers. That's what man did. And right now in the San Joaquin River where I live, there's 15 dams. That doesn't even count the weirs all the way out. You got, you know, congressmen and a president screaming on, jumping up and down, the water, this is stupid, the water, you know, shouldn't be going to the ocean. The water has to go to the ocean. That was the design of the creeks. It cools the ocean down. And right now, scientists will tell you the ocean is warming and the ocean is rising because, you know, glaciers and everything else is melting. Well, if you're not, cooling the system down then of course it's going to do that you know so I don't know where these people you know get their information or I, I know where they I know where it stems from and it stems from their wallet you know right, because, and kind of because I, mean, that's, I, I would that's say a lot of action you know, is, totally. you know.
0: Yeah. and also kind of a better understanding of things um, one of my own uh, personal philosophies is I think that um, anything that's true, like truth, I think exists in multiple f- uh, facets. It, it can never be one thing, it can never be something you can, you can hold on to. It's, it's many things at once. And I think what I find really compelling about what, how you're describing the recognition of the fact that you know if we want food and if we want to be able to thrive here, it's good to recognize the fact. That all of the things that we see around us and everything in every direction of ants all the way through meadows to larger game animals to even bears, right? Um, everything is dependent on everything else.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the thing that we've got, gotten so far away from is our medicines. Every species has their own medicines. Even a dog will go out and eat blade of grass because he needs it. Right. You know, so there are different medicines that all species need. Now, if they're not healthy, that's the first thing that you need to look at is where is their medicine? How is their medicine doing? I don't care if you're in the ocean. You know, and you got walruses, or you got dolphins, or you got whales that are that are sick. And I and I hear this all the time. You know, the the ocean laboratories. Oh, we're doing such a wonderful job because we're we're uh, you know trying to heal these animals, and you know, and they're, they're sick. And it's like, well, again, where is their medicine? Have you been out there to see what's wrong? Right. You know. And it's the same on the land. When we burn and we put fire on the land and we're burning resources, that's why it's called cultural. When we burn the resources to restore them, the medicine plants all come up. They come up at the same time because the seeds there just hasn't had fire for decades. And all of a sudden it's, you know, you've got, all sorts of different medicine plants growing right along with your resource because it needs fire too.
0: It's a natural part of, of that cycle. Um, I want to back up a little bit. Um, so you said pre, we were saying describing what it was like pre-1918 and, and the 40% of canopy or less. Where's the canopy at now in most of our forests? And you said that that was an intentional shift. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's because of timber, but...
1: 80 to
0: 90%. So it's more than doubled.
1: Oh yeah. And then wow. logging hasn't is still going on, but it hasn't been, you know, the way that it was back in the eighties and seventies. Right.
0: Which is actually a problem of why there's also the fires are getting more intense. Yeah, so
1: when, when the logging got done with a piece of ground, it, it was pretty open, you know, that would open it up and, you know, lots of, uh, cultural resources, berries, um, uh, you know, elderberries, gooseberries, you know, they would all start growing and, you know, loving it. So they, it needs, needs water and it needs sunshine. Right. Don't have you can have all the water you want, but if it don't have sunshine, that don't do any good either. You, all parts of the equation need to be in place.
0: All right. You're just suffocating it in another way. Mm. Um, so what was that intentional shift then? Was that just neglect of the land That that uh, caused more of the trees to sprout, or was it again? That
1: policy, that policy shift was to keep fire off the land, keep fire off the land, suppress it, so that you can grow more trees. You know, and then
0: they wanted to grow more trees,
1: and they grew more trees. I mean, even now, even even today, uh, I've been out with forest folks. And you driving along, and you see this little 10-acre grove. And it all of the pine trees are one kind of pine tree, and it's all, like, 25 years old. You say, well, wait a minute. What is that? Oh, well, that's so-and-so's uh, uh, grove he planted when he first came to work here 25 years ago. Said, well, why didn't he tend it? why didn't he go in and thin it right you know he just planted it and left it well who grows a garden like that you know
0: i want oh i love that you just asked that question so when we were talking last time i uh, i asked you if a, a framework of thinking about this is not to think of like think the easiest way for like a listener to understand to to get the concept would be like nature right the way for us to look at nature is not as an area to just say how that man did that grove where i planted these trees i'm doing a good thing for nature now i walk away and the best thing i could do is to leave that alone where what you're saying is it's better to look at it as a garden that needs tending to allow it to flourish
1: the whole forest is a garden You know, and and it was tended by the Indians for thousands of years that they lived out there. Pre-1800, we were talking 1850. You know, that was before settlement from the Euro-American. But pre-1800, there were 350,000 Indians plus in California living on the land. Living on the land, you know, out there. You didn't have horses, didn't have cars, didn't have fire trucks. So you had to take care of your own land. And, and fire was your tool. Keep, your, keep where, you, where you camp, where your village is, where your family's, you know, sleeping. Keep it open. Not only because of fire, that's wildfire that's going to come along, but, you know, 1800, we still have grizzly on the land. Very still, big grizzlies. You know, elk was still around, right? Big lions were still around, you know, and all of these could eat your children in, in a hurry.
0: And, and would very much like to. Um, <laughs> you, said, uh, you said something that was really interesting uh, last time when I, I made that garden comment, and you said that a lot of the um, archaeological sites they're finding are adjacent to meadows,
1: Well, pretty much like I said, we have, you know, 10,000 plus meadows throughout the Sierras and almost every single meadow has uh, some archaeological site. I say attached, but it might be a quarter mile away, but, you know, they're all close to the meadow. Primarily because, again, you live out there in the hills and in the mountains You can't afford to leave your your family and walk ten miles a day in any direction because you're not coming back that day. You're gonna come back the next day. Well, when you get back, whatever food and medicine you brought back, you got to go again in another direction because your family's still hungry. Right. So you're gonna spend your entire life walking around the mountains trying to find food. No, you know they didn't survive for and live for 10,000 years with that kind of practice. So your meadows, you know, your meadows became your shopping mall. Your meadows become your refrigerator. You know, because if you got a good, healthy meadow, that means you have several wet springs and probably one or two good springs. And when you do, all the other animals know that too. You know, so it's like, At 10.40 in the morning, Mother Deer brings her two babies down to get a drink. Well, you know, Lion, he's got a good watch, probably a Rolex, you know, and he looks at his watch, and he, oh, here comes Mama Deer and her two babies. I'm I'm getting kind of hungry. I want some breakfast. So he knows, right? So then he goes down, and he tries to get him a quick breakfast, and maybe that works, maybe it don't. Bear, he's sitting out there too. He's sitting back there in the woods watching lion because he knows lion will fill up and then he maybe he'll leave something. So, on the other hand, he doesn't get any deer. But now here's your little seven-year-old and nine-year-old running around out there. You know? Uh, they come free game real quick. Right.
0: That's... um. Yeah, you, you mentioned that last time, and, and I, I really would like to just kind of like make one highlight one thing that you said, just to kind of shatter any misconceptions that anyone, any, anyone may have, is that you said that, there's, they, that people wouldn't be able to live for 10,000 years wandering around a mountain looking for food. And, and I think that's a conception that a lot of people have of what life pre-industrial, pre-cities... You know, and tribal life was like when it. And what you're saying is, you're giving a very real example of what it was actually like. And it was nothing like that. It was tending the world around you, allowing the world around around you to flourish, setting up the world to flourish. I, I do a
1: lot of writing, and you know, the argument comes from folks who you know call themselves archaeologists, or and and they've been out there. And so they find hundreds, if not thousands of of sites where Indians have been. And the first thing they do is they talk about how nomadic the Indians are. They're all nomadic. Well, there might have been some tribes who followed the buffalo around, right? But as far as nomadic, we're no different today than we were back then. If you got a favorite site to go, and your grandfather's been going there, your father's gone there, now you're going there, and you're bringing your own children there. For four different generations, you like to go to this one spot to go camp. But if it's full and you get there, now you got to go look for another spot, pretty much in the same area. You're not going to run all over the place trying to go someplace else, because that's where you wanted to go. Well, when you figure out that you've got 350,000 Indians living out there, they're going to have sites everywhere. And there might be some movement. But what you got to understand is the culture. You, you're down here, your main village is down here, let's say, at 2,000 foot elevation. And I hear this all the time. I used to tell my elders all the time. You can't say that. The the ethnographers and the researchers, oh, well, when it got hot, your, your people went up into the mountains. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that, that would be what happened. And they're, no, it didn't, you know, because about four or five of our foods are ready to harvest in the middle of the summer, down lower in the valley, and they somebody's got to go harvest that, and then there are some up higher, so somebody's got to go up and take care of those. Somebody might have went clear over the Sierras to go trade with somebody else over there. Your family goes everywhere. Wintertime, your family all come back together, and through the winter and early spring, you're all living together, and you're bringing back and you know. I myself, I really only harvest about five or six things. That's about all I've ever harvested. I know all kinds of foods, all kinds of resources, but for the most part, I only do about five or six different things. And then I trade them. I trade others, you know, for what they harvest. And that's exactly what we've always done is you have something to trade if somebody else didn't go you know and go and you're yeah. not nomadic you don't just pack up and and go somewhere it didn't work that way that i mean that that's that's still today that's still prevalent today that that researchers and colleges are still teaching that kind of stuff
0: yeah and, and i think it's kind of absurd what? to be honest uh so there, there's this i'm really into reading like um travel logs of like uh the first people the first Europeans that come to the continents and the reason is cuz it's usually it's translated to english and it's accessible to me is the main reason i do that also because the descriptions that they have of before disease went through is quite it's quite fa- it's 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 so opposite of what per- like conceptions are in the mainstream kind of narrative and it's like, you know, maybe there was some people that their, their sole culture was to move around. But the variance in culture from east to west coast, to, you know, up, in, up north and south, within bands, well, you know, know, like a, a, within different got, bands of tribes. It's we're so we're in a now.
1: pandemic right now. And, and some people, oh, we've had a, a pandemic two centuries in a row. And excuse me? This is our third century back right. back in the early 1800s we had every disease that the white man could think of to bring into us you know <laughs> and it it killed the whole yeah. villages so yeah. you know the
0: scale of that is also something i don't think is under, quite understood like a lo- um so um, pennsylvania i know this uh, in pennsylvania that the disease was so bad there that a lot of forest did pop up. So like Pennsylvania is, is Latin for Penn's forest. And before really before Europeans started setting up cities there, it was more like uh, prairies, but because the peoples there were so devastated, they weren't able to do the same practices and all of a sudden a forest cropped up. So like the first people, it's like, they get there and like, Oh my God, there's all this land that we can use for farming. And then the next set of people come and they're saying like, Oh my God, there's all this for timber for shipbuilding. And it's like the, the scale and the, the pace of it, right? Like, like the, the, the quickness, like, you know, the way that Europeans culture has been. And I would, I would say for hundreds of years at this point is a very close relationship with a very select few crops and animals. And they hyper-specialize a very select few of crops and animals and, and techniques of managing those with the land. And they just live very live and work very close to what that is. And that's transferred a lot of diseases to Europeans. And then Europeans, you know, unknowingly and then later very knowingly transferred those diseases to people around the world. And, it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's the pace of, like, the pandemic, all of the worst fears of the pandemic that we just felt right now, the, all of the potentialities of, like, everyone you know is now sick and you know know, whole cities are affected that was what happened not to get
1: too political with you john but even right now the reality is we don't know if this came from animals or man right
0: no I, i agree
1: and back in the time of when the euro american was coming in into america they intentionally brought disease in they intentionally put Disease on blankets. Yeah.
0: Right after signing peace. Or they freeze.
1: brought their sick people into a village. Didn't have to fight. There was no reason yep. to fight. You know? Just,
0: they didn't have enough people to fight, anyways, and that's a lot of the reason why they did that. Give
1: us a, a couple of days here. We'll, we'll be good. You'll all be dead. Right. You know? That was that was intentional. Right. You know, the use of what do you call it? Uh, Biological chemical warfare. Chemical warfare. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's something I think about very often, very often. I mean, I'm from the Midwest and I grew up, I, I lived for several years, like surrounded by cornfields. Like my backyard was a cornfield for a couple of years, you know, several years. And I, and I understood that. And, and I, you know, I thought that it was, it was what was, what happened is, you know what I mean? It's just the, this, this is the way we farm. This is what happens. And this is, you know, you rotate the crops between corn and soybean because you know corn takes nitrogen out and soybean puts nitrogen in um, and you know all of these like practices and I was like oh okay that's cool straight rows and then it it got really shattered when I understood how horrible that is for the land how horrible that is for the nature and how like you know I I, I, it really hit me a couple years ago or maybe 18 months ago when someone just was driving down a road and they were like taking at night and they were taking a video of it and in uh, iowa i think it was and he was like you know i don't this is so weird he's like you know for several you know the past couple of years there's been less and less bugs he's like you know i don't get any bugs anymore and that really hit me because like living in the country we would clear bugs off the car all the time you know what i mean like we wouldn't go get to get the car washed for any other reason than the bugs you know and to see like it not looking like star wars you know when the, the they go into hyperspace and the streaks because that's what the bugs looked like it was just constantly streaking And did not see that I was like, "Oh my god!" And then to understand that's because monoculture is essentially just like sucking everything out. It's sucking all the nutrients out. It's sucking all the air out. It's sucking. It's it's flooding the air with one pollen or two pollen, and it's killing any drive of the bees to go. You know, there's it's the levels of which it doesn't actually make sense. Um,
1: And then and then what happens? What happens when that when that process has been going on, and when you look here, on our forest, and people are talking climate change, what's what's creating part of that climate change? Carbon, right? You no, know, our vehicles, the way we live, our our factories, our cows, you name it, and where does it settle? It settles up in the foothills and in the mountains. And what does it do? Parasites and invasive plants love it. You know? And and they start.
0: The higher carbon.
1: Yeah. Hmm. They love it and they start taking over. And then they push out the native plants. When we're restoring meadows and we're restoring our lands, what we're doing is attempting to push out the invasives. It takes years. I've got. Some areas we've been burning for 15 years and, and the, the invasive is pretty well at a minimal. I won't say it's gone because it takes forever for it to be gone. But once the native plants start coming back, they start push, pushing it out and holding it at a minimum and so that you're able to work with it year in and year out and just be patiently going after it you're you're not going to eradicate it one time. It doesn't work that right. way. You got it. Because, because our environment is still the same. Mm-hmm. We haven't changed, you know, to make it to make climate change change here. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and and well, to like bring up that philosophy back again that you had of recognizing that everything around you and everything you see and don't see is interdependent on everything you do see, need, and, you know, thrive with. That's the same aspect of why climate change is affecting us. Every aspect of our modern life is causing some, you know, some part of climate change um, as well as it's affecting everything else. Um, and and what I th- think is awesome about what you're doing with this meta restoration and all of that is having a thriving biologically diverse ecosystem is going to take carbon out of the atmosphere and sink it into the soil so it's actually a carbon sink which is great um and so so can you walk me through a little bit of some of the meadow restoration that you've been doing
1: sure um you know uh, like i said you have all these All these meadows and seventy percent needs maintenance or repair, twenty five percent are non existent. That means the meadow is technically there, is no longer functioning, right? No longer functionable and for the most part it's non existent. But that doesn't mean that it can't be restored and so you have to come in you have to remove eradicate what don't belong on there and if it's a hundred pine trees that somebody planted on your meadow which is often you know then they just
0: just planted it just to plant it or planted it for timber or
1: planted it for timber and it, it had all the water it needed so you can plant it and leave it you know right no so you remove it you 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 take the water suckers off. To understand something on a little bit more scientific level is big, big trees, pine trees, oaks they will suck water up two meters you know, that's six to seven feet deep. And so you can look around at your water table out there, and it might be eight feet down, and most of your big trees are somewhat healthy. You can tell they're, they're stressing trying to get water Mm -hmm. but the smaller vegetation they can only go down one meter and then your plants and your flowers they can only go down one to two feet for their water so they come out nice when you're open the land and the water table comes up then they're quite evident there are flowers everywhere Right. Then, then as, the, as the water subsides, then the flower dies off. But if your water is able to keep coming back up each year, you know, then you're going to have this, this flower base. Now, what does that mean? That means you're now providing food for more insects, for you know, smaller you know, reptiles and birds, And so we do a count of all of our meadows. We count different species. And we might start with 15 or 20. In a matter of two or three years, we are at 125 to 160 different species. Wow. Because we've opened the meadow up. We've brought water back. (laughs) And when you do then all these species they need food too and they also depend on each other so you know there's food for them and they have what they need and that, and that's how the 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 it the meadow works
0: you know right so so how how do you so you restore it through through burns right that's how you pull the water Manicuring, I call it, landscape.
1: We do some burning. Um, Every now and then, I haven't actually been to... uh, I did a recent uh, burn of uh, three acres in which everybody was calling it a meadow because it was between a a pond and a creek. (laughs) (laughs) And when it got done, it looked like a meadow. That's awesome. When it it re-sprouted. But... Um, For the most part, you know, we're not gonna go in and set something on fire. We're gonna go in the spot burn, places that maybe there's invasives. Maybe uh, the grass needs to return here. Maybe, Maybe different vegetation needs to be brought in. So we might actually have to go dig some up someplace else and bring them up over here. Not necessarily from another meadow, But within its own system, you go find pieces and bring them back to where they want. When you start looking at the oaks, and you see that you've opened up the, the canopy, and the oaks are now, let's say you have 60 oaks, and you had three oaks that produced acorn. But after you put fire underneath them, cleared the duff, and in most cases, the duff is anywhere it's from one foot to two feet deep.
0: And by so duff, you just mean like... oh, like, Yeah, so just like old sticks.
1: Well, inside that duff is weevils and worms and all sorts of different parasites. You know, they're all thriving. That's their home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But so bad that every acorn that drops to the ground, you know, becomes... Spoiled to a sense where
0: it just gets eaten up.
1: Attacks it right. Right. Well, that's no longer a healthy nut for even the animal. It's not even healthy for them, let alone for human. We've gone to the point where we've burned under a oak, cleared the duff, and yet the acorn was still bad. So then we start looking at the tree, and we even lifted the canopy on the tree to get it away from the ground. That kind of worked. We began to open up fresh acorn, had a cap on it, still green, pull the cap open and there's holes under the cap. These things, you know, worms and weevils and everything attacking this acorn before it even matured. That's how bad, you know, It was. So, so you basically have to kind of like restart. You have to put fire under that tree, smoke it. You might have to do this, you know, for three years before you start to get a change and make a change. And then all of a sudden, uh, I know one of our meadows, we had uh, 62 black oaks and 49 golden oaks. And Three or four golden oaks produced acorn, and the same we had three, four black oaks that produced some acorn. Now, since we've been there for 15 years, and we've had three fires on there, so now we have uh, almost every golden oak has acorn, wow. and, and numerous black oaks are have acorn. But we also have about a half a dozen trees that we call mass producers. So most acorn trees will produce fifty to a hundred pounds of acorn. You know, a, good, a good acorn tree is two hundred pounds of acorn.
0: Wow. I didn't but, know that. That's a lot.
1: But a mass producer, a mass producer will give you four hundred pounds of acorn. <laughs> wow. One, one tree. Why? Because it's going to have three different crops. You're going to have an early crop, a mid crop, and an end crop. Oh, wow. And they're all lower, middle, and higher levels. But when it's producing, and it's going to be big acorns and good acorns, you know, and so you get three or four, of those. you don't have to go nowhere. Right. It's you know, a
0: lot of protein. I
1: just, I just go to one spot and gather... Seven or eight big boxes of of acorn, and you know, then I donate them to my acorn makers, and I eat free acorn most of the year. That's great, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's all part of the part of the way. But what's so where, important?
0: Where are these trees? Where are I'm these not, meadows?
1: I'm not telling you.
0: Okay, no. no, I mean, are they in your land? Like, are they in your managed land?
1: Yeah, I'm just kidding you. Yeah, they're they're up in the foot in the mountains. That's the great. thing is, when you have acorn you've got tons of squirrels the gray squirrels and ground squirrels they're all coming in the little gophers the moles they're grabbing acorn they're stashing acorn and when they do they go bury it and pretty soon you've got a hundred little oaks growing you know like a like a carpet of oaks all over and you need that. Why? Because Mother Deer brings her fawns. And up to three years old, her, her fawns are eating that oak. And you can look at the oak and you can see, you know, they've been eating on this for two years. They've been eating on this last week. Wow. And that's when we come in and we either clip them or burn them and give them different levels growing so that they keep bringing. Now, you take it real quick. You take the mother. The mother takes two and a half years to have a baby. It takes eight months to have the baby. That's a little more than three years. That's a three-year-plus cycle, and you're looking at three to five-year cycle on those little oaks. And you change them out. The mother, the fawn that was there, grew up and have a baby. You now she's bringing hers back. You're recreating tradition. Wow. And I go out on these meadows and there's three or four mothers out there with their babies. Sometimes black bears over there laying around, you know, up by the spring. And you see fresh deer kill, hind quarter gone or neck gone, you know, lion drug his kill over there and you say well, well why would lion bring his kill over here why didn't he just eat it where he got it but he brought it over there and after he filled up all the other animals came to eat and when they're all done mole and porcupine and squirrel and everybody else they come to eat the bone so you look at the bone and you've got different teeth marks. Because they need that calcium. And so they're coming to get, that's part of their medicine. So this deer went from food to medicine. Wow. And, and the lion brought it there because he was generous. But because it's that community I talked about, they all need to work together, right? Including right. the pigs. That's Including amazing.
0: I really like how you said tradition because it extended the tradition to the tradition that is built with the deer so that if you've been burning, I that one meadow you've been burning and tending for 15 years. And if it's three, you know what I mean? Three, three years is a generation to get built. That's five generations of deer that have now built a tradition of bringing their young to feed on your tended oaks. You know, and then and then also, I don't even know the lifespan of a of a mole or a porcupine or a a, a squirrel. But I mean, all of that is now possible because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, you got animals like the fisher. Uh, the fisher's on, a, on the endangered species list now. Well, it probably was because the acorn groves were not producing acorn. They're not producing acorn. Then where's the squirrel that the fisher eats? You know, and so it's it's a cycle. I mean, it's it's a circle of life, and and it, if you got parts missing, then you're going to have species that become threatened. Right. It's a
0: it's a continuum. It's always moving. And if you take one piece of that continuum off, then what else? You know, it's just not going to be that part is going to not be moving or have harder time to keep keep in motion. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the the forest floor affecting an overgrowth of parasites and really that 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 breaking the the breaking down and disintegrating parts of the forest then attack the acorns and then there's not as many squirrels and not as many oak trees which means not as many deer which means not as healthy squirrels. Um, like what you said with the calcium as medicine, that's that's really it's unfortunate. So, how are there any impediments to your tending of the land, or because uh, I know that in one of the articles I read that it was cultural burns were hard to get permission to do or something along those lines. Like,
1: well, every air every air uh, pollution board is different. Uh, we've been working on the San Joaquin Air Pollution Board to make changes. We have affected some changes and very important ones, uh, especially for the bigger agencies, that when they start burning, uh, it usually takes four to six days to do a burn. They need to finish that burn. They can't be told two days later or three days later that you got to put it out because now that still takes another two or three days to put it out, and now you got a mess. But if you'd right. have let it burn through, it would have done its job, and we're all going to be in better shape.
0: Has that happened, where you were told to stop?
1: It did before. Yeah. Since 2017, I think it was, we made that change. And then uh, and then... That's been beneficial, but you know they're just uh, getting to the point where they can effectively do more burns. Mm-hmm. But culturally, they they're still having a hard time understanding what that means, uh, understanding where we're at. Uh, I Ooh, burn
0: culturally, as in like the. I'm
1: burning, you know, in, in why from, you're burning
0: like the California Californian culture.
1: My my style of burning, right? And so, because um, you know, like, again, like I said before, we don't have fire trucks. You know, we're we're not young red carded people with yellow suits. You know, but we're burners. We know how to burn. We know what we're burning. When you talk about most of these agencies, rather the state agency like Fire or even Forestry, these people are, uh, you know, igniters and suppression fighters. So that means they they know how to start a fire and they know how to put a fire out. But do they know how to burn? Not really. Because they... They, they kill too much when they burn. They burn too hot. They don't prep the land properly. So we have to spend at least two to three times more. So if, if it takes an hour to, to do a burn, we have to put at least three to four hours prepping the land, getting that burn ready. So if we're gonna burn something the size of a small house, and you can't have it burning up the hillside. You know, going up to the nearest town and burning that out. It needs to burn just what we're intending to burn. And when we burn, we want the root system intact. We don't. We don't build our fire as big as the house, so that. It'll burn, burn quickly, burn down, and the root system is still intact. Because I want to return within one month. In three months, I want to. I want to see that return to be two to three feet tall. You know, I'm trying to get new life. I want greenery. I want to vegetation that's going to hold water. I'm not prescribed fire where I'm burning for fuel reduction, and I don't want anything returned to the land.
0: Right, you're just trying to reduce the risk of catastrophe, as opposed to what you're saying, which is tending your garden. Um,
1: That's what's on fire right now.
0: Yes, it's the it's the overbuilt of seventy plus years of unmaintained overbrush that it just needed a lightning strike to make an entire mountainside to go up. I mean, for the,
1: for the most part, the shrubbery that's out there is alive, and not very healthy. Right, but it's alive, and almost every shrubbery has dry limbs or right. has, uh, something attacking the bark. Uh, And mistletoe, it could have a California daughter, it could have uh, lichen. all sorts of things that have been uh, working on these trees and slowly killing it, but, you know, it's still waiting for fire.
0: Right, right. well, all those things that are slowly killing it also increase the risk of fire because you're going to have trees that are not as strong like right just like you have trees that don't produce acorns and some that are you know over mass producers you're going to have some trees that are not going to be able to fight off that which then become an increased risk for fire Um, and they're not getting tended to either Um, and if there's nothing actually holding water there that's there's no healthy system to keep everything going so the water is going to be further and further down which means less and less trees have it which you know what i mean like it it definitely is a tumble towards catastrophe um so you said you want to come back in a month so you you burn and then do you come back to just monitor or are you tending in that month three month cycle or while this is this meadow is burned or are, you, are you coming back to make sure that you know other species aren't cropping up again and pulling them um
1: most of the time, if there's other species, it's medicine plants, and they have a shorter lifespan. Mm. So, and they'll be they'll be around for a year or two, and then they're gone. They travel, so I know that it won't be long before they're out of the system there, and then that that vegetation is going to be stronger but the only thing we tend after that is the outer perimeter keeping the outer perimeter open so that these this vegetation that we burned has a better chance one we want it to be producing a fruit if it has it and you know Cultural resource if it if it has it, be, being uh, say redbud for instance, so redbud is a basketry stick, and so we want good shoots. We don't we don't want a redbud that is, you know, growing a dozen limbs on one stalk. It's not a good redbud. But so you have your harvesters come in every year. And they thin it. They don't wipe it out, they thin it. And then you you keep keep this cycle going. Now after four or five years, I might need to reburn it again. But you know, this is part of the cycle.
0: It just gets in, right back into the cycle.
1: In the meantime, I've had several basket makers there gathering right. armloads from that one plant. And then your sour sourberry or three-leaf sumac, for instance, it also has a stick for basketry, different kind of basket. And then, but it has a berry for food, you know. And then uh, within it, you might have other medicinal plants that grow and kind of attached to it. So that one... I probably won't have to retouch for another 15 years because it's going to grow. It's going to produce before anything starts to happen to it. Yeah. So it's going to have a good life. 15 years from now, I probably won't be burning anyway, but someone will. That's the whole generational aspect that I'm training my younger nephews. I'm training my grandchildren. I'm, you know, so that when they each of them get older, you know, my nephews and nieces are going to train younger ones. And you keep that cycle going.
0: It becomes part of the tradition like I was talking about with the deer, right? That's really, you that's, that's really beautiful. You got it. Um, I have a question. So 70% of, oh, actually, all right, 95% of meadows need work. Right? Yes. why isn't that being done
1: good question I've done six and we got nine that we're gonna that we're assessing right now with the Forest Service um, a are these few, on,
0: on Forest Service land or on your land yeah, yeah, Forest Forest Service. Forest
1: Service. and a few tribes are are working uh, a couple of parks that I'm aware of like Sequoia Park yeah have gone in and put hundreds or, or thousands of dollars into a meadow to restore it. I mean, it was the most beautiful thing I ever seen because they diverted the water, they took out the natural plants, and then they came back and restored the land the way it should be, put a new bridge in, put the plants that they dug up back into under where it belongs and then went up and put uh, logs and, and avenues in that is going to change the water flow so that it's not creating it's not flowing in one spot but but flowing in the whole whole meadow area Wow! and then and now it's just immaculate, so yeah if you if you got you know half a million bucks, you can do that, but for the most part, most meadows most meadows to do them right run about a hundred and twenty thousand
0: so uh, about every meadow about a hundred and twenty thousand to get it back into function, and that money goes into just machinery and and Hours of people to have people to go out there?
1: Hours because you're looking at three to five year commitment.
0: Right. So that is mostly just going to, to, to people to pay people for three to five years?
1: Pay people. Uh, you know, if you've got uh, like the six meadows that we did, we probably wore out three or four chainsaws. And the other four that I bought are now wore out. <laughs> <laughs> so you know they don't last very long when you're cutting every single day right I mean, we're not we're not using great big huge chainsaws cuz we're we're talking about smaller trees so
0: so for 12 billion dollars we can have all the meadows 10,000 meadows functioning if it's 120,000 dollars A meadow, ten thousand meadows. My back of the notebook math is twelve billion dollars. Hey, there. Quick note. I'm coming in at post. I actually did the math wrong, and I carried the wrong zero. So it's not actually twelve billion, but one point two billion, which is around one and a half percent of California's budget. Uh, California's budget last year for the fiscal year was seventy eight point five billion. You know, I mean.
1: There you. Yeah, that might be close.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, people may be uh, shocked by that, but I think that that's an awful cheap ticket for having reduced fire risk, increased wildlife biodiversity. You know, uh, I mean, there's not going to, and the watershed would be a lot more stable. Um, there's not going to be an overgrowth. Like I know, two years ago, when there was a lot of rain here in California, that what I was reading was that they were worried about the fact that because there was actually more water, despite the drought, it would cause more of the undergrowth to get worse because that's the part that's going to soak up water first.
1: Yeah. Quite normal.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, that's an, and, and it seems like there's not a lack of want of people to restore the meadows. So what are you, wor- what are you working with the forest service to do? Is it to, to get funds? Is it to get, just to allow them to, you know, allow them to let you do it or what?
1: Funds are hard to get. Yeah. Funds are available. But everything's got to be in place. So when you're working with an agency, such as the Forest Service, um, these meadows have to be assessed, planned, and then you have to have uh, um, a a NEPA, which is a a National Environmental Policy Act, drafted, drafted, And then eventually you have to have you know a record of decision which says, here's what you're gonna be able to do. And you know, so the problem there is that that's all mostly done by the Force Service folks themselves and they're looking out for themselves. So they're saying, Well, we don't wanna do this because one, we don't have anybody who knows how to do that, two Uh, I don't want to get tied up having to do that, you know. So pretty soon there's bits and pieces that are left off. So what am I talking about? Let's talk about erosion, for instance. Um, Almost every meadow has erosion because the water has been running down one spot and not the whole meadow. And so there's not a whole lot of funding or time written in for erosion repair unless they get so bad that somebody says, you got to do something with that. You know, other than that, uh, it's not. The roads, roads go through the middle of meadows. Roads, every meadow has a road, either through it or near it or by it. And these are causing problems. So most of the, most of your culverts, were put in the 50s. Some of them are like 18 inches, some of them are 24 inches, you know, and they need to be at least 36, if not more. And so, they can't, uh, they get plugged up, and the water runs over the top of the road, and erodes the road, but the culverts are still there, because they weren't part of the plan to remove them. Right? Right? So, so this Very this is bureaucratic. part of your record of decision. You say, well, I, I got money. I can have them, you know, hire a subcontractor to come up here and remove it. Well, they don't have no approval for it. And like, oh, okay. Well, what about this railroad that came through here in the 1800s? And they parked, they parked out there to, to load the logs. So they created a platform and it moved the creek. Creek was up here. Now the creek's down on the bank, and now the creek is w- washing out the bank. But it's supposed to be up here. You can actually see where it was at. You know. Right. Oh, but this is an archaeological, you know, uh, discovery. Here. But it, that can be changed. You know, because California law says that you can record it and and change it. That's simple, coming out and removing it that's a whole different ball game because it's not in your record of decision
0: right wow, that sounds so, frustrating
1: oh, so these are all these little things come into play when you're when you're trying to restore you know what does that mean and uh, when I first started six years ago or ten years ago the the forest was telling me how they've been restoring these meadows for, since the 40s. And they put in little weirs and they put in, um, they went out and did head cuts for an erosion and they rocked the head cut. And you go out and you find this new shiny rock in the head cuts of these erosion areas. And all they all it did was created a faster avenue for that water to run down into the gully and right. make it deeper. Right? Right. That's what your head cut did. Okay. It's no longer getting longer, just deeper.
0: Right, right.
1: <laughs> so, you know, that that's 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 what you gotta deal with. It's it's not a simple Task now we've put ourselves we we put ourselves in a hole and it's going to be hard to dig out you know
0: and all of the the checks that we wrote are becoming coming due at once yeah um, how do you keep motivated while you're dealing with such <laughs> bullshit
1: uh, because sometimes what I do is just leave them alone for a while and go go work on another project and then pretty soon they come back you know like I thought we were going to do this. Well, I thought so too, but I don't see no movement, you know, but I see movement. So I will tell you this much that uh, I've been working over the years, took me five years to effect an agreement with the forest called a master agreement, cost share master agreement, which... We will be doing our own burning. We will be doing our own certification. We will be running, you know, our own same operation we're running now, but we we'll are be in charge. And that took 2018, we got it signed.
0: Congratulations, that's awesome. That's a huge deal. I'm very happy to hear that.
1: 2020, we finally got the first supplemental agreement to work on a project. Oh god. And and this one is for 2 years. So 2022 we will finally be able to put it wow. in play. Oh my god,
0: 4 years. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you and your your uh, and the North folk our North Fork are continuing to work at this because
1: I keep telling them this old horse is going to lay down in one of those meadows pretty soon. So oh. I don't
0: know, you know. You think you got a lot of fight left in you?
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to go pretty soon. But
0: yeah, well that that's quite a right. We can we can pause here. I I really thank you again for for coming on, and I'll ask for you know we can follow up in an email like where people could donate you know, to, to this cause and any of the, any more resources that you would like to share, I would, I would definitely like to put that in the, in the notes. Um, I'll pause the recording in a second, but before I do that, is there anything else you wanted to to add before uh, we can, we can chat for one more second before we go, but if there's anything else you wanted to add while we're recording.
1: I I don't know. We've covered a lot of ground. Okay. Well, thank you again, Ron. There's more to, more to discuss and think about, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, yeah, and then you know, it's like I said, uh, I was doing a interview with German TV yesterday, and they they kept trying to get a political statement out of me, and that political statement was, well, the president says it's it's um, you know land management problem, and the governor says it's climate change, you know, which is it? I said, it's both. Yes. It's both. So then pretty soon it was, Well, oh, the president says this, the governor says that, which one would you go with if you had to go with one? I said, neither. Neither? Yeah, neither. Neither, because they're both correct, but they're both incorrect. Right. They're both incorrect because... Neither one of them, the President nor the Governor, understands the land right they don't understand you know what the land needs and how you're supposed to take care of it. But if you don't understand that, how can you be making comments and statements? Well, you can because you're a politician, but you know the reality is you know they don't know right i'll leave you I'll leave you with this. Same comment that I left with these, those guys was I've been all over the world. I've been to Australia, been to visit with the Maori. Uh, they have water issues, and I deal with water all the time, water and fire. But with the Aborigines, it's, you know, fire. And I've been there to speak to 11 different tribes. And uh, they've been here to our meadows and our burns. And so the thing was, is that when everything's all said and done, because they got to deal with government like we do, is you know what? We can only affect what we do in our backyard. So go home, work on your backyards, and keep working on your backyards, because it's all we got. In one way, One yeah, in one way it's a little sad because it's not very big. For me, I work in Mariposa, Madera, Fresno, and Tulare counties. That's my backyard. <laughs> still not very big. Still not very much. But you know, if everybody was doing that, if everybody worked on their backyards, things would be a whole lot better.
0: Yes, and not looking at their backyards as just what their property is, but actually, like you just said, your backyard is several counties.
1: And I've been after, I'm on all kinds of collaboratives and forums, and I've been after people in the mountainous areas, especially in the the township. I come from North Fork. If a fire hits North Fork, the town is gone. If a fire hits Shaver Lake, the town is gone because they're not brushing. They got brush right on the road. They got brush all over around the buildings. These are people who live up there. You know? And if you're, if you're not going to make your home and your town defensible, right. there's no stopping a wildfire. And the other thing is, is I keep telling homeowners, take care of your property. But if the Forest Service is next door to you, then tell them, I want a quarter mile. I want a half mile opened up right. around my property. It ain't going to stop a wildfire, but it's darn sure going to slow it down and make it maybe even controllable. And it's, it's gonna not going to give gonna, you a chance. And it's not going to come ripping through and just take my home. Right. So, and, and get out there and help them. Cut the brush down, you know. But to, pe- to most people, brush means every plant. So if you've got an elderberry growing out there, you know, not only can you use that for food, but cultural resources, but it has dead stalks. If it's got dead stalks, you go out and you clean it up. This is what we do when we harvest you go out and you clean it up so that it's somewhat fresh. And when a fire hits it, it's not going to burn like whoosh, you know. It's going to burn. It's just not going to just explode.
0: It's gonna. It's like kindling. When you, I, I mean, the imagery I would say for our listener is like if you're having a campfire and you throw a bunch of brush, like a bunch of leaves, into a fire. It's gonna. It's gonna. It's gonna. Or a bunch of sticks. Like when you're trying to get a fire going, it's going to go up really quickly. But if you throw a, a, a freshly cut piece of stick or something that's still a little wet and bendable in there, it doesn't burn the same. It, it may burn if it's hot enough, but it's, it's going to take a while. And while it's burning, it's going to burn differently. And I think that's the point you're making, is if you tend not, it, if you keep it...
1: It's not burning hot. Right. You can't, you can't get very warm by, you know, a stick that has, has been damp. My, my father used to do that all the time. He used to leave his dry wood out I said, you're not going to cover it up? Oh, no, I don't want it covered up. I want my my dry wood to get damp, to get wet. Because when I bring it in the house, in a day or two, it's going to, the top will thaw out. And then it'll burn slower. Right. But it will still warm me.
0: Right. Because you don't need it to get that hot, and you want it to burn slower, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that's... i I like that message too is to tend to your backyard learn your back i would say add to that learn your backyard right what's the area around you and how can you get you know help out with that i think that that's great all right I, i appreciate it ron thank you very much
1: thanks